0: Welcome to Jewish History Soundbites podcast with Yehuda Geberer. Immerse yourself in the rich tapestry of Jewish history as we explore fascinating tales and uncover hidden gems from our glorious past. Brought to you by our proud sponsor, Cross River, a leader at the intersection of financial services and technology committed to empowering the communities they serve. Cross River's steadfast support fuels our mission to preserve our heritage and foster a vibrant future for all. Contact Cross River through their website at crossriver.com. A date which will live in infamy. Both of those. Projects, initiatives got off the ground because of the guerrilla. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic team. Out of the 24 who were killed, were Americans who had come to learn in Tehran. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words? It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish history soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem. Jewish historian and tour guide You together with Jewish History soundbites and uh, this episode is a special nine days episode and it is about medicine and the Holocaust uh, specifically about Jewish doctors, physicians healthcare providers, nurses medics and moral dilemmas they faced during the terrible time of the Holocaust as well as uh, stories about specific individuals and um and uh, we we'll will examine and explore different aspects of this story. It's based on a talk I just gave last night at a wonderful uh, community here in Rehovot, uh, who invited me to come speak there. And there were actually several doctors in the audience, and I got very great feedback. So I know it's going to be a good episode here tonight, um, and I decided to share it also with the great listeners of Jewish History Soundbites. In fact, when I was speaking last night, I mentioned that I may be mispronouncing medical terms or titles and stuff like that incorrectly, so if anyone would like, I invited the audience to correct me afterwards um, if I was mispronouncing anything, and we davened Myrav right after the lecture, and uh, in the middle of Myrev, someone slipped a piece of paper onto my shtender, and I look at it after Myrav is over. And it said, I'm going to read it to you, bacterium singular, bacteria plural. Thank you for a fascinating talk. That's got to be one of the best feedbacks I ever got on a lecture. Um, so I hope to say the word bacterium and bacteria correctly, uh, from now on. Um, the idea of this, um, t- this, uh, topic Medicine in the Holocaust. It could be examined, um, at a macro level, at a micro level. I'm going to focus more on the micro about specific individuals and stories and dilemmas they faced and grappling with the dilemmas. I also will leave it as a struggle, as a dilemma, and I will not answer the questions that were raised, uh, by some of these individuals about the morality of their actions. I think it would be too judgmental to go back and This, you know, sit back in our air-conditioned rooms here, 80 years later, far away um, from that time and place, and you know, attempt to understand and pass judgment. I just want to present the stories as is, along with the moral dilemmas, and uh, and try to uh, see what we can glean from it from a historical perspective. Um, Of course, like everything in the Holocaust, we can examine it from the perpetrators' side. Which would be to talk about Nazi doctors, SS doctors, the horrific medical experiments that took place in places like Auschwitz, Birkenau, and other places, uh, Stutthof, other many other many other places. That would be a fascinating story um, for a variety of reasons. I'll save that for another time. Perhaps we'll explore that in a future episode. We can also um, focus on bystanders, which is the majority of the world population during the years of the Holocaust. They're not perpetrators or victims, they're bystanders, and perhaps that's even the most important story. But I'm not going to do either of those uh, for the most part. I want to focus on the victims, uh, Jewish doctors, physicians, nurses, like I said, um, across the medical field profession, in the ghettos, in the camps. I will actually, just to give you an idea of what a bystander is, maybe I'll open up with a story of a bystander, and then we'll segue kind of into the stories of of uh, of the victims. Um, there's a Polish doctor, uh, Polish non-Jewish doctor, obviously, it's a bystander, uh, Dr. Eugene Lazowski, and he served as a physician in the Polish army, and then after that in the Polish resistance, and he lived with his family in Rozwadov, which is in... It's a shtetl in Galicia. It's, it was a prominent town, and as far as Jewish history is concerned, the very Hasidic town, um, different rebbe's of the. Uh, I, I should have double checked this before I opened my mouth, but if I recall correctly, it was uh, Rupshitz jikov dynasty. Uh, that that part of Galicia, the the, the descendants of, of of the Rupshitzer. I think we're in Razvedov and um in the surrounding areas so it was a prominent town as far as Jews were concerned and he's a um he's residing there with his family and he heard and there was of course a Jewish ghetto in the town and this was going to be the beginning of the deportations from the ghettos to the death camps to the gas chambers and he heard from a medical friend that um an interesting discovery of some sort i guess that one can be injected with some sort of strain of bacterium, because it's singular, um, and, and if one was injected with this bacterium, then one would be able to test positive for typhus without actually experiencing typhus. So. He, you know, there's one thing that the Nazis were scared of would be the spread of typhus to Nazi military barracks, to the SS, to the local population. They were always terrified of typhus. So if there was a typhus epidemic, then the Nazis quarantined the area, which would delay the deportation. So he essentially created a fake typhus epidemic. This he did at great risk to his life, this Dr. Eugene Lazovsky, because had the Nazis found out that this wasn't really typhus and he was doing it specifically to save the Jews, then that would have gotten him in big trouble, to say the least. It probably would have gotten him killed, possibly his family as well. Um, and he creates this fake typhus epidemic. And the Nazis actually went ahead and quarantined the area, it delayed the deportation. And because of that, it, 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 it gave them time to, realized what was going on. It gave them time to prepare hiding places. It gave them time to run away to forests. And obviously not all the Jews in that area were uh, survived the war, but a significant number had this extra time because of his heroic act and were able to get away and save their lives. So it's an incredible story of a bystander, a bystander from the medical profession, who uses his medical knowledge to go ahead and risk his own life to be able to save others. But now we're going to move to um, the stories of the victims. And I'll start, of course, like many stories are in the time of the Holocaust, in the Warsaw Ghetto. The Warsaw Ghetto um, is the largest, of course, has nearly half a million Jews at its peak. And they it's also the capital of Poland. There was the largest Jewish community in Europe before the war, so... If we take a snapshot of Warsaw before the war, as far as the medical profession is concerned, it has the best Jewish doctors, it has many, many Jewish doctors. There are several active Jewish hospitals in the ghetto with a very limited resources, almost no medical supplies, almost no medicine, um, terrible hygienic condi- conditions, um, uh, you know, Shortage of funds, shortage of space—you know everything possible. It was terrible, terrible conditions, but very, very dedicated uh, healthcare providers. And I want to read a passage. One of the best books that have ever been written is um, Dr. Samuel Kossov's, um book about the Ringelblum Archive. Who will write our history? Uh, it's also been made into a movie. If you're not, if reading books isn't your thing. Um, but, um, it's, it's one of my favorite books. And I'm going to read like a, a page from it, with your permission, about the, uh, one, the children's hospital there. And very harsh reading, so I hope you don't mind, but it's the nine days and we can deal with a little harshness. So I'm going to read a passage from there. One of the key institutions that fought for the lives of the children in the Warsaw ghetto was the Burson and Bauman Hospital for Jewish Children which had been opened in 1878. For many years, one of the chief doctors of the hospital was the legendary Anna Broud Heller, who stayed at her post until she was killed in 1943. Among the other doctors who worked in the children's hospital was Adina Inke Schweiger, who later became an underground courier and survived the war. When the Germans ordered the final liquidation of the children's hospital on September 12, 1942, Dr. Schweiger decided to poison all the children and thus spare them the horrors of Treblinka. Now, just parenthetically, before I continue reading, um I'm going to get back to Dr. Schweiger's story and about the moral dilemma she faced in her decision to go ahead and spare the horrors of Treblinka to these children by uh, by poisoning them. We're going to get back to that. Uh, but let's get back to the... Passage from the book Nurse Dora Weinerman gave the Einig Shabis Archive a revealing document scenes from the Jewish from the excuse me from the children's hospital between March and May nineteen forty one. On the night of march third, nineteen forty one, Weinerman and her assistant were deluged with work. They had to wash, feed, and give injections to fifty children. Suddenly the telephone rang. Ten new children had arrived, but there were no beds, blankets, or clothing. The hospital had no heat. Each bed had each bed already contained two children. Weinerman was told to add a third child to each bed. Um, a swollen five-year-old is lying in the corridor. He is dying of hunger. He came to the hospital yesterday. Two swollen eyes, hands, and feet like little pumpkins. We did all the tests: kidneys, heart trouble but it's neither the child barely moves his lips and asks for a piece of bread i give him something to eat maybe he'll swallow but no his throat is swollen nothing goes down it is too late the doctor asks have you eaten something at home no do you want to eat now yes after a few minutes for the last time he says a piece of bread and with these words he dies Not everyone on the staff could cope with the pressure and daily heartbreak. Nurse Weinerman reported how a desperate mother appeared at the hospital with a dying child. The attending physician explained to her that the hospital could not admit her child unless the mother left a 15 zloty deposit for funeral costs. The hospital simply had no money to bury children. But the mother was a refugee. Lived in one of the shelters and did not have a penny. The weeping mother suddenly let loose a torrent of anger. All her misery and pain that had been building up since the beginning of the war is unleashed at the doctor. You are not a doctor. You are a murderer. You want to kill my child. You have no heart, human feelings. For 15 zloty you want to sentence my child to die they have expelled me four times already where am i going to find money she clasps her heart and sobs the child is lying on the table its face already blue gasping and choking for its last breath the doctor can no longer endure this scene and runs out of the room the mother is left alone with the dying child. She screams until the guard comes and asks her to leave. She takes the child and curses. This is supposed to be a hospital? Let it burn. Doctors without hearts, killers, bandits. Such scenes occur very often. Now that is a a um, direct translation of a document from the Ringelblum Archive. And we know that these doctors were doing everything they could um, to to alleviate the pain and suffering of sick patients, and from their perspective, they're doing well, well beyond what they're expected to do under these circumstances, At almost no pay and it, it really heroic work, and yet, from the perspective of this mother, um, you know, we just heard what she said and and, uh, and and how she reacted, which is a completely understandable reaction for someone who's confronting the death of their own child. So it's really this incredibly impossible situation. And into this impossible situation, we move to the next story in the Warsaw Ghetto, an incredible story where a group of Jewish physicians working in Jewish hospitals in the ghetto, about 25 Jewish physicians get together, and they and they, they conduct... Professional medical scientific research on the effects of hunger and starvation on Jewish patients in the Warsaw Ghetto. Now they do this in order to be able to plan better their limited resources. They do it to better understand it. No one had ever faced such starvation before and no medical research had been conducted on such a topic. So this is incredible operation where they, where they go ahead and, and test it from a very medical scientific point of view. Under the conditions that they were operating, they themselves were probably starving as well, and you have to remember that nearly a hundred thousand Jews die in the warsaw ghetto from the conditions of the ghetto, just from the physical conditions from the malnutrition, from disease, typhus uh the lack of hygiene and and this is before treblinka, this is before any gas chambers, before any deportations so It's an awful, awful situation, and the doctor and this group of physicians is trying to professionally assess the effects of of starvation and hunger on patients to be able to better understand it, to be able to use it and, and, and use it to help people. Now, they actually do this research. They write up their findings as if it were a paper to be submitted to a medical journal, and they eventually, at a later point, they actually smuggled out these papers, these scientific papers, and to a colleague of theirs who was a Polish doctor on the other side for safekeeping. Now I don't know if even one of those doctors survived. I don't know, but those papers, so says this book, anyway, um, were published in a medical journal after the war. In other words, it was real research. It was it it, it ended up being a, re- a real thing, which is an astounding. Thing that have have taken place inside the conditions of the Warsaw Ghetto. Um, if we move from Warsaw to Vilna, we have a fascinating story of Dr. Mark Dworzetski in the Vilna Ghetto. He was a physician, served in the Polish army, and was captured as a prisoner of war. He escaped, um, and he made it back to Vilna. And in the Vilna Ghetto, um, he and a team of Jewish doctors uh, did everything they could to provide health care under bad hygienic conditions and a dearth of medical supplies and medicines. And then later on, towards the end of the war, he's deported to a concentration camp in Estonia, um, along with the last remnant of the Vilna Ghetto. And there he continues in even more difficult conditions. He's administering medical care in this concentration camp in Estonia after years in the Vilna Ghetto, in a desperate attempt to keep other prisoners alive and he's obviously not being paid to do this, he felt this as an obligation. He survived the war, he moved to Israel, he resumed his medical career, but in parallel he also devoted his life to Holocaust research and specifically to the heroism of of uh, Jewish uh, physicians and healthcare providers during that time. He also invested great efforts and succeeded, actually, in those efforts in establishing the first department and endowed chair for Holocaust research in the world, um, he, he did it at Bar Ilan University after Hebrew University and Tel Aviv University turned him down. Both of those universities have Holocaust departments today, as well as many other universities around the world. But the first one was Bar Ilan because of Doctor Dvorjetsky's uh, lobbying, and he was the head. Of, he served as head of the department. He also testified at the Eichmann trial. Um, um, interesting, he described in the in his testimony at the Eichmann trial, which is available, all the it's all, you could look, up, look it up online, it's all on YouTube, uh, all the testimony from the Eichmann trial, but it's also a, a, a moral dilemma that he described, actually nothing to do with him as a doctor, nothing to do with the medical profession, so it's not really related to this episode, but just once we're mentioning him, and it is a moral dilemma, he described that since he was a physician in the Vilna Ghetto, so he had working papers, and on those working papers, he was able to save a female and two children. So it was presumably his wife and two children. The problem was with him was that he had an elderly mother as well. So who, who should he save on his working papers, his mother or his wife? So he goes to his mother, this old Litvisha traditional woman, and he asks her, who should I save, you or my wife? And this, and this, uh, this special uh, holy woman, special, uh, you know, simple Litvisha lady, uh, elderly woman she says to her to her son doctor Dvorzetsky she says to him she quotes the Pussak in Parsha's Baratish Al kein Yazov Ish Es Avives imay Vidovak Bishtoy. When a person gets married, he leaves his parents home and he 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 becomes one with his wife. He's Vidavak Bishtoy. His his wife is is his life now. So he said, This is your wife that God has chosen for you. You stay with her. Don't worry about me. And he goes ahead and the hardest thing Eddie ever did was he listened to his mother and his mother eventually of course gets killed in Ponar Forest outside of the Vilna ghetto and uh, he and his wife uh, survived uh, the war I think I believe his wife survived as far as I remember double check that um, so so that's an a, a, again a moral dilemma um, but going back to the medical profession and here we have healthcare providers who are not doctors an, an incredible story. From the Sobibor death camp, there's this um, inmate. Now, Sobibor is a death camp. There are no inmates, essentially. There's no, you know, it's, it's, it's just you come in gas chambers straight away. But the Nazis do keep several hundred prisoners there to run the gas chambers, to sort out the clothing and belongings of all the victims who come. That's the only people, Jews, who live at Sobibor. The rest are just killed upon arrival. There's no selection. There's no anything. It's a death camp. But... um one of the few hundred, and of course there's a revolt, I spoke about that last year, around this time of year I devoted an entire episode to the escape from Sobibor. Um, so one of those who escaped during the revolt was someone who um, was an in, was a in, in, inmate at the Sobibor death camp, his name was Yussel. his last name is not given in the testimony that I saw, and he's appointed by the SS to be a medic. Um, for in sobibor, now incredibly enough, they had this infirmary because these were skilled workers, so they had uh, the Nazis had limited patients with them um, to to uh, provide a very limited health care um, and uh, gave them a couple of days to recover if they were ill or had a cut or something like that. The Nazis never gave him enough bandages barely any medicine it was he was working under almost impossible conditions and also usually they lasted there only a couple of days because the ss would lose patience and then and 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 uh, not not allow someone to you know take his time in recovering um so what's Yassel, the medic supposed to do in a place like Sobibor in a death camp in the shadow of the gas chambers and incredibly he, he Ingenuity, he comes up with this system that he's going to save lives and he's going to keep people protected, even in a death camp like Sobibor. And what he did was, and he he goes ahead and reports this to SS Sergeant Carl Frenzel, his uh, his boss essentially. And he says to him, he devised a index card system for the infirmary when in, when a when a when when a sick Jewish inmate comes into the infirmary, he enters his name and date that he arrives on an index card. And this way it keeps track, it keeps a record of who he co- who comes in. So when there's roll call, and someone's missing from roll call, and Frenzel calls Yassel and says, well, is this person missing because he's in the infirmary? And Yassel says, yes, he's in the infirmary, he's sick. And Frenzel says, well, when did he come? He's probably hiding there for a couple of weeks, the lazy Jew. And Yasso the medic will pull out his index card and say, "No, nope, he actually just came in yesterday." So you know, just relax, basically. Now, what was the what was the genius of this guy? Um, he said that he would rip up the index cards on every third day, and he would write new ones as if they had just come in that day. This is an incredible, it's an amazing risk. He he risked his life doing this every single time. Because if Frenzel or any other SS officer in Sobibor would have remembered that the person had been there for several days before, he would know that this guy is lying and had, you know, written a new card for him. So he did it at great rate risk. He testified himself that he kept a a couple of of prisoners who had frostbitten legs inside their warm barracks for the entire winter, using this ripping-up-the-cards-every-third-day system. He kept um, inmates who had typhus for several weeks, sometimes months, inside their barracks without the SS ever figuring it out. And this was an amazing heroism that he did to be able to keep uh, fellow Jews alive. Now we move to um, another few stories, uh, three or four stories of courageous individuals, and what I like so much about these stories is that all three, all three or four, let me check my list here, I think it's four, are women, Jewish women who are also physicians, which wasn't that common at all both women physicians in the general society, especially Jewish women physicians before the war. So you're talking about individuals who already expressed some sort of independence in their trajectory of their careers. And here, during the Holocaust, they faced... uh, also, you know, tremendous um, moral dilemmas and moral conviction in going ahead with what they wanted to do. The first one, and all th- and all of them are from different countries, different stories, different angles, different ways of confronting these challenges, and they're quite interesting, these stories. So I'm going to go through, I think it's four of them here. Uh, the first one is quite famous. I think many people have read her book, uh, an amazing woman, Dr. Gisela Pearl. Um, her book is, 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 is very... Very famous and important book and uh, well-read. Um, she grew up in a very religious Heimish home um, in Siget in uh, Transylvania, which was sometimes Hungary, sometimes Romania, depended on the day. But that's why we say it's in Transylvania. This way you don't have to explain whether it was in Hungary or Romania. Um, and Siget, Siget is, you know, a famous Hasidic town where the Satmarav was born, where Elie Wiesel was born. A lot of famous people come from Siget. Maybe we'll do an episode on Siget one day, a very, very prominent historic town in Jewish history. And, um, and he, um, and she grows up there and again in this very religious home and she expressed interest in going to medical school and becoming a physician. And her father discouraged her from this, uh, from this, uh, career path, because he feared it would weaken her religious observance, her religious, uh, you know, connection, Um, so he discouraged her, but finally he relented, and she went to medical school and became a gynecologist. In the summer of 1944, at this point, Siget is in Hungary, so she's deported to Auschwitz, like all of the rest of Hungarian Jews, in the summer of 1944, following the Nazi invasion in March of Hungary, and this is the great deportation of Hungarian Jewry to Auschwitz, where in the span of less than two months, 434,000 Hungarian Jews are deported to Auschwitz, the greatest, most awful uh, massacres um, and deportations of the entire Holocaust. This is towards the end of the war. The Soviet, the Red Army is advancing around the corner and there's, they expedite the process to exterminate Hungarian Jewry in Auschwitz, which was the only death camp that was still functioning. Um, and it's discovered, she passes the selection. it's discovered at some point by the head physician, SS physician at Birkenau, uh, Auschwitz to Birkenau, the infamous Dr. Yusuf Mengele, so she's. It's discovered that she's a physician. So she's appointed by Mangala to be a a doctor in the infirmary in the women's camp at Birkenau, and she had to provide medical care without medicine, without antiseptics, without running water, and trying to perform uh, uh, medical. You know, condu- just pr- provide medical care under those uh, Spartan conditions is not even the word. Is 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 heroic in its own merit. She also had to perform surgeries with a knife and nothing else, no anesthesia. And under these conditions, one of the surgeries that she performed on many occasions was abortions, because a pregnant woman in Auschwitz was a death sentence. And if the SS didn't notice it at the Selektia that a woman was expecting, but they might notice it later, and that was a death sentence, the woman's life was going to end. It was there there was it wasn't even like a, a risk. It was it was it was a certainty. And therefore, she went ahead and performed these abortions in order to save these women's lives. Now remember she's a gynecologist. She was a fertility specialist. She had helped she had helped people, you know, become pregnant back in Hungary um, and have and have children. And now she has to Go ahead and be someone who's terminating life, terminating pregnancies, because she feels this is the only way to do it. This is Auschwitz. This is an alternative universe where, where we have to end life in order to preserve life. Um, she survived the war, moved to New York, uh, published her memoir of her experiences quite early on in 1948, um, and it's been in print uh, since. And then she resumed her medical practice at Mount Sinai Hospital in Manhattan. As a fertility specialist, which she expressly stated was to counteract uh, the abortions that she felt that she had to perform, and now she, now she wants to bring life to the world. Um, so that was one story from Hungary. Hungary, Excuse me. How we move? I want to bring back the story of Doctor Adina Schweiger um, from the Warsaw Ghetto, who I mentioned before in passing when I read that passage from uh, from. um from Kassov's book. Um, So I want to go back to her and her story. Um, She was this Polish-Jewish woman. um, As I mentioned, she lived in Warsaw. She worked in the children's hospital in the ghetto trying to save these children's lives, working under desperate conditions and nearing a nervous breakdown because of her inability to save more lives. The whole time she's struggling with herself. And um, over 40 years after the war, she finally told the story for the first time about what she did to those children uh, during the great deportation from the Warsaw Ghetto in the summer of 1942 when everyone was being deported to the gas chambers at Treblinka, she kept it a secret. She never told anyone what she had done to those children. Because she was ashamed, she felt people would be judgmental, and it was over 40 years later that she finally wrote about it in her memoir, and then there was a New York Times article about her and profiling her and talking about her and her story. So I want to quote, again, I'm going to read a passage from this New York Times article published in the 1980s. Um, part of it is quoting her directly. Part of it is is just describing the story. So we tried to save them with those scraps of food, medicines, and injections, she wrote. Some children received enough to smile, except that this was the kind of smile that made your hair stand on end and your flesh crawl. Famished skeletons fighting over the soup pot, spilling it, and lapping the slop off the floor. Every day she went to a square to look for stray children in order to bring them to the hospital, and she befriended a Ukrainian guard with vodka. Uh, to to be able to go around like she did. And once he was talking to me, when a little girl appeared at a window, he raised his gun, shot her, and carried on talking to me. I picked up another child I saw. I said goodbye to this Ukrainian guard and walked away. Only I didn't know how to hold the child so that it wouldn't be hit if the Ukrainian shot at me. At the hospital, towards the end, Uh, corpses and the living laid together as soldiers killed some of the patients and ordered others to the death camps at at treblinka a nurse pleaded with dr schweiger to inject the nurse's bedridden mother with a lethal dose of morphine she agreed She also decided, and this secret she kept for 45 years, to carry out euthanasia on some of the children. In the infant's ward, she spoon-fed each of them a fatal dose of morphine. Just as during those two years of real work in the hospital, I had bent down over the little beds... So now I poured this last medicine into those tiny mouths. And downstairs there was screaming because the Germans were already there, taking the sick from the wards to the cattle trucks. She told the older children to get into bed, and this medicine was going to make their pain disappear. So they lay down, and after a few minutes, I don't know how many, but by the next time I went into that room, they were asleep. And then I don't know what happened after that. That memory never left. Um And uh, she survived the war. Uh, she settled in Poland. She stayed in Poland after the war. So that's another story. And facing these, this awful dilemma about... She wants to spare the children the pain. They're not with their parents. They're in their hospitals. So they're going to be taken sick, roughly, by the SS, shoved down the streets of the Warsaw Ghetto, brought to the Umschlagplatz at the end of the ghetto, loaded onto trains to cattle cars to Treblinka, and then be gassed in the gas chambers, and then turned into ashes. And she felt that what she could do for these kids to spare them all that horror is to have them in their own beds, in the hospital, looked after by the dedicated doctors and nurses that had been looking after them since they had been admitted to the hospital, and dying in familiar territory in the ghetto, maybe even getting a burial, who knows. And she said that must be a better choice. And she goes ahead and injects them with morphine. She spoon feeds them with morphine. And this is the moral dilemma she faces, because on the other hand, she sees herself as as a murderer, that she killed these children, um, and and this is an you know incredibly difficult thing to live with. Um, but that was the the impossible choice that she was faced with. Another doctor, third Jewish woman doctor uh, from a different country, Doctor Lucy Edelsberger, a German Jewish doctor. She pre-war she pra- practiced. Pediatrics, uh, pediatrics, and internal medicine. She specialized in immunology. When the Nazis rose to power in 1933 in Germany, this is way before the war. This is when Hitler rises to power in January 1933, and German Jews start to suffer from the uh, legislation of the Nazi regime and the discrimination and and all these the the terrible uh, progression throughout the 1930s that German Jews experienced even before the war begins later on. Um, so she's fired um, because she's a Jewish doctor. She can't serve as a physician in a hospital or a clinic. And then she's stripped of her medical license in 1938 because she's a Jew. So a Jew can't be a doctor altogether. In 1943, she's deported to Auschwitz, where she worked in the infirmary assisting typhus patients. She also, similar to Dr. Gisela Pearl, performed abortions, and she obtained poison for this purpose. Um, and she also witnessed, she described, again, this is a very harsh testimony, she described that when she ha- was forced to tell mothers who who, uh, who who had given birth, and they knew that they would be killed, their child would be killed, and they wanted to s- spare that in, in Auschwitz. Again, this is not so well known that this actually took place in Auschwitz, and she would tell them sometimes that she didn't even have poison for them that they wanted to poison their children. And she witnessed sometimes mothers having to strangle or drown their own newborn. The most awful situation faced so that it shouldn't happen by the SS and have the mother killed as well. Um, She was later on in the war sent to the all-woman Ravensbrück concentration camp in Germany where she survived and settled in New York where she resumed her medical practice after the war. She also published her memoirs in the 1950s. A fourth Jewish woman doctor, also back to Poland in the uh, in the Warsaw Ghetto again. Doctor Alina Brevda, um, who opera you know it continues also in one of the Jewish hospitals in the Warsaw Ghetto. Later on, she's also deported to Auschwitz. She happens to also be a gynecologist, obstetrician. Now in pre-war Warsaw. Just have to tell you that it was not a very encouraging uh, environment for a medical specialist of her kind, as either a woman or as a Jew in the in the Polish medical profession pre-war, nineteen twenties and thirties. It was a very very male dominated profession in the general society, and they were also somewhat anti-Semitic. Um, and uh, therefore as a Jew. So here she's a Jew and a woman, and she was a very strong and de- determined, independent, and uh, she persevered. And she worked in the hospital in the ghetto, and during the um, uprising, during the Warsaw ghetto uprising, she was deported to Maidonic. And in Maidanik in this concentration and death camp, she performs surgeries, fights typhus, smuggled in medical supplies. And one of the amazing things that she did in Maidanik Was that a typhus patient that died in her infirmary, she would not report the death to the SS, which was an amazing risk. I mean, if they would find out that she was keeping a dead person not reported, she could get killed. Her staff could get killed. Who knows what the SS could do in their policies of collective punishment? And she goes ahead and does that. Why? Why? Because if she doesn't report the death, then that typhus patient would receive one of those meager food rations that the SS distributed to all inmates. And she took that food that the dead person obviously didn't need and used it to give a double ration to a live typhus patient. And she did this all the time, keeping dead typhus uh, victims in her infirmary for as long as possible so they would continue to receive food rations so that she can share that with other patients. Uh, amazing. She was later transferred to Auschwitz. Um, she survived. She moved to London. She also resumed her career as an obstetrician and gynecologist. She also wrote a, memo- a memoir as well. And she, unlike the others, she also testified at Nazi uh, war criminal uh, trials. Um, now, I could go on and on and on. I mean, there's so many more doctors I could tell you about. um, um a whole long list here in, in, in my notes. Um, and maybe we can continue this at another time because there's just tens and tens of stories of doctors and medic, not just doctors, nurses, medics, healthcare providers, even people who had nothing to do with the medical profession, but did some sort of help and healthcare for others and faced impossible situations. Um, but I think we'll leave it for now. So this was a bit of a harsh episode, hard to hear at times, but it's the nine days, and it's the time to confront some of the uh, uh, more tragic stories of our history, especially of our recent history. And uh, this is Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sponsorships, and lectures. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on your favorite podcast platform, and I hope you enjoyed.